News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in on this Monday morning with our Raji Sahal. There's so much to talk about today. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. First of all, are, are you a boxing fan? I wouldn't even say that was boxing what happened last night, but just checking in on the whole pop culture thing about what happened. I, I can't I can't tell you I'm a boxing fan, Simi. I don't you think you needed be too to be. Surprised that I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened last night between Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather would be classified as boxing. It was spectacle. Might have been entertainment. I'm not sure about the people who spent money on it. But yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of debate and discussion about that today. Mm. I know. It was one of those things where you wonder, why did people spend money on this? But we digress. We'll leave that for something else. I want to talk about a story that you are working on today that we're going to be discussing later in the show. And this has to do with this very contentious issue of building a road through Bear Creek Park in Surrey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Simi, I've, since I've been hearing about this story, you know, murmurs here and there, I've thought, hey, I got to get into this. I want to delve into this and find out what's really up. There's always not just two sides, but many sides to a story. And I cannot believe how much research had to go into finding out how strange this story is because this road popped up real fast. The it's, you know, first of all, it's been discussed for a long time mm-hmm. in Surrey. We're talking years, but it's been turned down, turned down, turned down. And the reason it was t- always turned down was singular. It was that the residents didn't want it. Do you think the residents suddenly woke up one day wanting this? That's not what I found. I found that it was pretty much pushed through without consultation to some pretty important groups, including um, a group, a a society in uh, Surrey that has organized around um, being friends of Mm Bear Creek Park. They amassed over 7,000 signatures really quickly, really easily of residents who didn't want this. And we're talking about the people who use the parks, right? I'm not sure how much uh, Mayor McCallum uses the park. But I, I even visited the park in person to talk to people well, and everyone I talked to. This is like, something we don't want a road. You and I had discussed last week, and that having grown up in Surrey, both of us, uh, you know, went to Bear Creek Park. Every, you know, so many sporting events happen there. As kids, you do you do field trips to Bear Creek Park. It's it's a gem. It's a gem, oh, and it's, it's so hard to think of, of this park. happening. It's a gem of a park, and uh, what some supporters uh, in the mayor's office will tell you is that that part of the park is not used. Not so. I also grew up right by that park, and we went to that trail uh, every other weekend, and we enjoyed watching the birds there and you know, trying to spy salmon in the creek, and it's just a magical part of the park. No, it's not in the middle of the park. It's, it's, it is to the side. Does that mean we should necessarily be bulldozing it down and paving another road? I don't know, Simi, once you start paving a right. park of all places, there's no going back. Yeah, I agree. So, you know what? I know a lot of Surrey residents out there probably feel pretty passionately about this, whether you're for or against it. Uh, we would love to hear from you because Raji's going to be doing a deep dive into this a little bit later on the show. But tell us, Surrey residents, how do you feel about the idea of this road being built so that 84th Avenue can go all the way through? Uh, it hasn't gone through for a very long time, but apparently this is now a big priority for uh, Mayor McCallum. But you tell us how you feel. Email me, simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899.
1-800-273-8899. Raji will talk about that a little later. Another story we were going to touch on today, Raji, boy, did you catch the Pope's comments about residential schools in Canada? I did. And you know, a lot of people are saying that they're not surprised. I was shocked. I was totally shocked. Really? Shocked. Yes. Why? The Pope has broken his silence. He's expressed sorrow. He did not apologize. And I'm shocked he didn't apologize because something is holding him back and and the institution back, uh, the institution of the Catholic Church back for some reason. And what is it? And now it's been hinted at that maybe it's the, the stream of lawsuits that will come. But, you know, words do change situations and victims feel that when they are apologized to. And expressing sorrow is not enough. There is systemic racism that resulted in the treatment of Indigenous people in Canada. And it requires that institutions do their work to dismantle it. If that starts with an apology, do that work. Do you think that there is more disappointment because this particular Pope has been seen as more compassionate and more willing to do those things. And the fact that he didn't do it in this case, I think people are are surprised. Absolutely. We have seen this Pope kiss the feet of the downtrodden. We have seen this Pope apologize for other things. We have seen him express deep sorrow followed up with action. Why would he withhold doing that for the atrocities that happened in Canada? It's It's, uh, deeply disappointing. I am totally shocked. Yeah, I was shocked too when I read that because I thought, well, eventually Pope Francis will say something because he weighs in on all sorts of stuff, right, from all over the world. Uh, it I was guess they did get lame. worried that it took so long. Yeah, I think you know, last week I was, I kept saying, hey, how come the Pope hasn't said anything? How come the Pope hasn't said anything? I was hoping that it was to gear up for a really heartfelt apology, but not to withhold one. When you withhold an apology when you know it's deserved, that's about power, Simi. Whether it's an institution or an yeah. individual, I don't understand that take on it at all, especially because of this particular Pope, as we were saying. And I just wonder at this point, you know what? Maybe a visit to Canada is in order. Or do it in person. Like, I, I don't see what else could possibly help at this point other than getting absolutely personal with this. Yeah, I don't think that the Catholic Church nor the Pope wants it to get personal. I think, in fact, if anything, they want to probably try to dissolve the Pope as the figurehead of this story, uh, because that wouldn't play out very well for the Church. But, you know, an apology, it's Yes, you want a heartfelt apology when it happens, but there are some times when, okay, if the Pope is not feeling a heartfelt apology, so what? This is about this is about a country that is dealing with, and, a, and many groups of people that are dealing with um, just atrocities, horrors, really. And if there's anything that the Pope or the church could do to alleviate some of that, to help Indigenous people in Canada who are, who are healing now, trying to heal, um, then it should be done. It certainly Period. sounded like from the stories that I was reading yesterday that uh, a lot of different groups, you know, indigenous groups were, it made them angry all over again when hearing, yeah. the, like listening to the statement or reading the statement. Yeah. Cardinal Thomas Collins, the uh, Archbishop of Toronto, he said on Sunday that um, such a dramatic step, such as a formal apology from the Pope, was perhaps not the best route forward. And that instead it should be, the work should be done in small steps. Well, you know, the work that is to come is huge and it's going to require lots of small steps. It's going to also require some big, important statements from the Pope. So I don't see this turning around in another direction, but I would like to see it happen. I would like to see an apology. 
oh, I think a lot of something really kind of forthright, right? Really honest and open. But you're right. I don't think we're going to see that, at least not from what we saw on the weekend. Um, All right. Thanks, Raji. We'll be checking in a little bit later. Sounds good, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Busy weekend for our Global Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block on Global News. Uh, Both Independent MP and former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould and Federal Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller joined Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block, and she joins us now to talk about what she found out. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, boy. These were some really interesting conversations. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's such a important topic to talk about and there's so much around it um it's a shame we only have 23 minutes to to do this uh because it's a conversation we need to keep having and, and then we're not going to keep it to just one week but we really wanted to get um some different perspectives uh jody wilson raybould obviously uh, is a former attorney general and justice minister she knows the laws uh, she's staunchly opposed to the indian act she thinks we need to get rid of it um you may remember that back in the snc lavalon days part of why uh, she was not happy with the Prime Minister's changes is that he and Jerry Butts had suggested she become the Minister of Indigenous Services, something she'd said she'd never do because of the Indian Act. Right. Uh, we wanted to get her perspective as an Indigenous woman from B.C. Uh, about the government and also to talk to Mark Miller because, you know, he is the minister who is in charge of this. And while a lot of the communities I've spoken with think that he's sincere, they're not sure that he has the backing of Cabinet and the Prime Minister to do the things that, that some of these communities would like to see done. Right. Okay. So, you know, tough job for the Federal Indigenous Services Minister, Mark Miller, as you mentioned there, but do do you get a sense of what is on their agenda, what they would like to change? Is there any progress being made? Well, they'll tell you if you ask them that they have made progress on 80% of the Truth and Reconciliation, uh, not just recommendations, but uh, essentially the the points that were put forward, and there was over 90 of them that need to be accomplished in the opinion of those commissioners. Um, It's a misleading thing to say in some ways, though, because 80% means they've started conversations on some of them. It doesn't mean 80% are done or implemented. It's nowhere close to that. Uh, Depending on who you talk to, it's anywhere between a few and a dozen of the recommendations that are fully implemented. Um, I think that they have made probably more progress than any previous government, but they're still well short of their own commitments on this, on everything from boil water advisories, uh, obviously to when we look at residential schools and you see there's all this money um, but $27 million in in money that was to be put out to look for graves and to commemorate those who died in residential schools and those who suffered has not been accessed. Why not? Well, why is it sitting there? Um, and, of course, there's the ongoing issues, because we talk about residential schools, but when you talk to a lot of especially remote Indigenous communities, uh, and I highly recommend a book to your listeners, Tanya Talaga's Seven Fallen Feathers. Mm-hmm. It is about Indigenous kids who are sent away from home now, still happening today, if you live in certain communities because there are not high schools. So we're still really taking Indigenous children out of their communities if they want uh, an advanced education. And by advanced, I mean what is basic and expected for everybody else. Uh, You don't see this happening the same way in white communities. There are schools that are built. Um, And I think there's a lot of questions for the government on progress on why they haven't put more money towards Indigenous children and why there's still so many Indigenous children in the foster care system, too, over half, even though they only make up 7.7% of the population. Right. And that's a question for provinces as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's what makes this file difficult, because education and child welfare are are both, in many ways, 
uh, constitutionally provincial. And the federal government gets involved there, but you've got to get the provinces on board too. Um, and you know, there are federal solutions that they could do with the provinces, you know, getting a commitment for more money to build schools, getting commitments to have more social supports in place for families at, in these First Nations. So uh, the response isn't to pull the child and put them in foster care because the supports aren't there. Right. Uh, there's also a lot of racism that's still endemic in the system. You know, young Indigenous mothers are far more likely to have their child taken from them before they leave hospital than young white mothers are. Um, and we still really have to address those issues, not just with the federal government, but with the provinces, yeah. with cities, with hospitals, with healthcare workers. It's a really big, complex issue. Oh, it certainly is. I have a feeling you'll be doing more episodes of the West Block on this. Mercedes, thank you for your time Absolutely. this morning. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. On Sunday, we heard that Pope Francis has expressed sorrow over the discovery of the remains of 215 Indigenous students of residential school in Kamloops, but not the apology that so many had been hoping for, had been seeking, and that really felt that the situation needed. Now, in remarks to the faithful gathered in St. Peter's Square, Pope Francis called on political and church authorities to work to shed light on what he called, quote, this sad affair and to foster healing. Well, that those words, that choice that he made there is not sitting well with a lot of people. Joining us this morning is Wayne Sparrow, the chief of the Musqueam. Good morning, Wayne. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So how did you feel when you heard about that? Uh, upset again. Uh, not surprised that uh, those comments came. Um, for some reason, they don't want to uh, um, deal with the issue that arise from the church. So, uh, you know, our national chief, Phil Fontaine, in 2009, went right to the Vatican with uh, Grand Chief Ed John and uh, Bobby Joseph to um, start the healing process and look for uh, um, the Pope uh, Benedict at that time to come out with a uh, apology, and so he fell short at the same time. So it was no surprise to us, uh, to our community, that uh, the Pope and the Catholic Church won't come out and... Uh, um, always stop short by saying they're standing with us and uh in sorrow but um it'll be nice for them to uh uh stand with us in an apology right let's talk about that then so then wayne if what would an apology do do you think what would a full forthcoming honest apology do i think uh, um, i can't speak uh for the survivors uh for across this country and this province because i was uh uh, younger, I was uh, not sent to residential school, um, but I think uh, it would just help. Uh, the federal government started um, with the uh, Truth and Reconciliation and uh, formally apologized for, A, starting the process by sending our, our uh, First Nations to the schools, and then um, uh, for the individuals, a lot of our, our community members have said that... Uh, that they want them held accountable for what they've done in, uh, to them in the residential schools. So it's more for them, and it's for them to speak um, and have their own voices for that. But I've heard numerous uh, ones in our community and other communities talk about how the church has to, the church has to step forward and uh, recognize and uh, start the healing process. So you th- do you think that's necessary then for those people that you've heard from? They need to hear this from the Catholic Church. Absolutely. You know, um, I talked to a couple of band members yesterday 
um, they were really upset with the uh, comments from uh, Ontario yesterday calling um, uh, Trudeau's uh, comments unfair. And the response from our band members were saying, <clears throat> if it's unfair um, for our prime minister to make those comments, was it fair to beat me in school? Was it fair to take the language out of me? Was it fair for the ones that went through the sexual abuse? And was it fair for the, the, the children that never came home? So for a comment, and the, the church is still to be um, making those comments that it was unfair and not doing apology is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, it really was, too. So we're talking about the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Toronto, who Thomas Collins, who said that he felt the Prime Minister's comments at the Catholic Church needed to step up. Uh, unhelpful and not based on real facts. Does this show you, Wayne, just how much further we have to go on this story here? Yes, um, uh, I, I think the, the right now are the uh, things that have come out with what happened up in Kamloops, it feels a lot better that to to me personally that now the British Columbians and Canadians and the people of the world are finally hearing what our survivors have said. Um, for when we get the Catholic Church to uh, to get to that uh, position, I think we'll be able to move forward as a, as a country and as a province and here in BC a lot faster. So. Um, so you're a big part of it. This time is different. Do you feel this time the response from everyone in the country is different? I think so. You know, our, our survivors were saying about the abuse, um, talking about this, uh, and it was led by, like I said, our national chief Phil Fontaine. But um, it got some recognition back in the day. But now that these children have been found, to see on the news with the rallies and the supports with First Nations, and hearing a lot of the people in the general public. Um, finally got the attention that our survivors have been saying for uh, since they've come out of residential school. Still have a long way to go, though, don't we? Yes, we do. And uh, with the support of everybody that's um, supporting now, I think we will get there. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. You too. That's Musqueam Chief Wayne Sparrow uh, talking about Pope Francis's comments yesterday, uh, calling this a sad affair. He wanted to foster healing, but not the full and kind of fulsome apology that, you know, that Pope Francis, I think, has had that expectation that he would do that just because we've seen him do that in so many other situations, right? This is supposed to be the compassionate Pope, uh, the one that people thought, oh, was going to kind of change the image of the Catholic Church. And then when he stopped short on this, you thought, why? Why are you doing that? And you can tell that for many Indigenous communities, that was yet another blow on the weekend. This is Mornings with Simi. On the topic of sexual assault, interesting case that has been in the headlines this past weekend. We know that three former members of the UBC Thunderbirds football team have now been charged with an alleged sexual assault that happened apparently near the university's campus back in 2018. According to University RCMP, they were called to a residence on Acadia Road around 4.30 in the morning on November the 5th in 2018, where a woman reported she'd been sexually assaulted. So three years later, they are now laying charges uh, in that case. 
talk more about this issue. Angela Maria McDougall joins us now, the Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Services. Angela, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Does it normally take that long? Like, does three years seem long to you, or is this just the way these cases go? Well, it does and it doesn't. Um, you know, sometimes uh, the the evidence is there and the uh, the charges can come quickly, and other times the evidence is there and the charges come three years later. Uh, it really does depend a lot on uh, the police services and, of course, Crown Council. Right. Okay. Now, in in these kinds of cases, then, I mean, we had somebody who reported right away when that happened, though. Mm-hmm. And I, I took that as a positive sign. It really is a positive sign. And so when we, when we take that, you know, add that to the context, then it does uh, seem like a considerably long time for charges to be laid. Uh, it is rare uh, because um, it's not often, I should say, that survivors will report right away because, it, you know, there's all kinds of complexities around uh, the experience of sexual, sexual assault. And it takes a lot for survivors to reach out to the police in order to give evidence and to, um, you know, to seek an investigation. And so uh, this gives us a sense, certainly, of, um, you know, this survivor's, uh, you, know, d- you know, really wanting to, um, you know, to seek, uh, seek intervention from police services and, and make that report uh, right away. Yeah, is that, are we getting better at that? Um, well, I mean, get better at, uh, survivors reporting or police are we, doing a proper are we feeling investigation? Both, Which one are we both right? Because okay, we know that like, yeah. if the numbers increase, people think, mm-hmm. oh, we're having more sexual assault. Or it is just that survivors are feeling more comfortable about coming forward and talking to the police about it. Well, here's the trouble with, I mean, it's, it's you know, there are many survivors that do come forward and, and you know, and, and give reports to the police. But we had just a couple of years ago, you probably remember this to me, the, the you know, the um, Global Mail did a sweeping investigative report looking at the extent to which police services all across the country were deeming uh, reports of sexualized violence as unfounded and therefore not even investigating beyond hearing the survivor tell their story. And so it's a, it's a really big issue in terms of thinking about the police and their response and to the extent to which they are, uh, you know, following through on evidence. Uh, and then the other piece is just the whole part around whether or not survivors want to go public with their experiences, especially when they're in university. Uh, it is, it's a little bit unusual in that sense, because typically what we've seen certainly is that survivors uh, are, you know, will give, will give their reports later, um, you know, maybe after they've finished university or further along in the process. Because think about it. You've gone to university. You've gone to university to learn, you know, and to, uh, you know, to study, uh, to pursue career professional goals, to grow, to make friendships. The last thing you would think is that someone would go to university and then perpetrate sexual assault. So, you know, and I, and I say this very clearly in terms of focusing on those that have been alleged and who have been charged. Uh, this, this piece is really important like, to think about, you know, about that part, that your, your, your education, your university experience involves also 
perpetrating sexual assault. That's jarring and, and, and quite distressing, and it's something certainly that we want to disrupt. Well, certainly something that is now talk, being talked about, right, as a result of this case being in the news. Um, Angela, thanks for your time on that this morning. All thanks to me. All the best. Angela Marie McDougall, the Executive Director of Battered Women's Support Services. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you've been following along in hockey, I mean, there's a lot going on there, right? We've got the announcement that the winner of the series between the Montreal Canadiens and the Winnipeg Jets are going to be granted a federal exemption to travel across the border to continue on with the NHL playoffs. So that's great for professional sports. What does that mean for amateur sports? We're talking about that now with Charlene Karpakovich via Sport BC, the CEO there. Charlene, thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Do you view this as a positive for amateur sport as well? Well, you know, I I think this is just a step, um, again, another step to indicate that slowly over time we're seeing sport return to new normal. Uh, so yes, while this is um, you know a federal decision impacting professional sports, I can say that this is a good indicator for for British Columbia and certainly in uh, here in BC we are uh, seeing some progress with the return to sport in our communities. Um, you know, last uh, well a couple a week or so ago on May 25th, uh, the provincial government uh, you know announced the restart plan, and in that restart plan um, in step one we we are seeing. Um, amateur sport return to our communities, particularly in outdoor sport. So since that time, um, outdoor sports can return um, with, with a few restrictions. So uh, I'm sure that, Simi, you've seen it in your community. I've seen mm-hmm. it in mine, and I anticipate in your listeners as well, as starting to see more sport activities out on the field of play and in, in communities across the province. Do you get the sense that this, like having this team get the exemption to go down to the States to continue the playoffs, just it's another feeling of life perhaps returning to that normal that we miss? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's optimism, right? It, we're starting to see things kind of return to way they, the way they were. And of course, you know, sport is very much part of the Canadian fabric. Our, our, our communities gather around sport. They celebrate sport. They're inspired by sport. So this is, um, this is a really great news to see um, this uh, permission being granted. And, you know, certainly in BC um, with the restart plan, we are seeing really good steps that will allow more and more competition, more travel over time, depending on uh, vaccinations, hospitalizations and case counts, et cetera. But um, for now, you know, our, our outdoor sports are well underway. And then by June 15th, which is step two, uh, we anticipate that there will be some further easing of restrictions um, coming out, um, you know, pending all of these uh, case counts, et cetera. But there's a real path forward now, and uh, people are excited. There's optimism. Clubs are ramping up. Uh, players are getting out on the field, and it's all good news. So, you know, given that we noticed how important fans are, right? I think professional sports have really learned that during this pandemic. Do you think we've learned overall, though, Charlene, just how important sports are to people, just having that ability to play and recreate that way? Oh, my goodness, Simi. Um, over the last year, um, our phones have been ringing like crazy uh, from parents, from uh, clubs, from uh, coaches, community supporters, and, and indicating how much they have missed um, sport in their communities. I mean, not only does sport deliver, you know, physical benefits, but it's really an important um, 
you know, important for important for our mental health, important for our communities as a way to gather, to meet. Um, and so, yes, people have said uh, how much they've missed it, how much uh, of an impact it's had on their on their families, and how delighted they are to see some slow and easy. Uh, easing of restrictions to get uh, sport back in our community. Oh, that is so true. Charlene, thanks for your time this morning. You bet. Thanks, Amy. That is Charlene Krepikovich. She is the CEO of uh, Sport BC, uh, talking about kids playing, getting back there. You know, if the NHL can do it, if they can make that exception to let the Canadian team cross the border, hey, I think it's time we all started, you know, worrying more about our neighborhood sports teams too. And there's a lot of good news coming on that front. This is Mornings with Simi. So as you may have heard, Surrey is going to put a road through the end of Bear Creek Park to divert traffic from the major intersection at King George and 88th. This new connector road would cut through and join 84th Avenue from one end of the park to the other. Now, the city says they hope it's going to solve the traffic problem. Our Raji Silhal joins us now to talk more about it. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. This story kind of hits close to home for me because I grew up only half a block away from the Bear Creek Park. We used their gardens, the track there, the swimming pool. There's a mini train going through there. There's an art gallery inside the, the Bear Creek Park. It's just a fabulous place for people to meet, for families to be. And as you know, the vote went five to four in favor of that connector road through the south end of the park. But let's talk about for a second what happens inside that area. There's migratory migratory birds. There's two major salmon streams flowing through the easement. You know, once you lay down pavement, I mean, there's there's no going back, right? Like if we put a road in there, there's yeah. no getting all that green space back. And of course, a lot of supporters will say that it's to reduce traffic and car crashes at those busy intersections nearby. And they are busy. Um, there's no doubting that. But some say that they're misled about the number of traffic accidents. And there have been a lot of urban studies um, in general, not of that area, but in general, that show that new roads actually often increase congestion in the long term because you end up with bottlenecks somewhere. They're also hoping to put in a 200-stall parking lot in that area. Um, but, you know, then you're bringing more cars that were, are going to come park there. So it, it could potentially also increase the traffic problem. But what I found the most interesting about, you know, covering this story is that there was very little consultation. We are talking, um, you know, a lot of concerns from residents left totally unaddressed. There was a city survey that was produced after the fact, after it was already uh, passed through. Just a lack of consultations overall and not included in the report were First Nations, who, given Surrey's high Indigenous population, you seem, you'd think would um, warrant their uh, consultation. And then Friends of Bear Creek Park, which is a society of residents organized around this issue, um, they weren't consulted. And then also Delta, which is legitimately concerned with a flood of traffic that'll that'll go all the way through to them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So who did you talk to? I talked to Ken Bennett. He's a retired biologist who lived next to the park for 30 years. He walked that natural area daily, but he also took an interest in the ecological environment of the creek. There's a very unusual situation in there that you don't find in urban parks. There is an interface of five different habitats all along that right-of-way. There's the forest, the wet meadow, an old field habitat, and, and two creeks, 
and they're salmon bearing creeks and they're red listed through the city. And this road will cross through every one of those habitats. As a matter of fact, it'll carve through the forested area of the, the bottom end, the south end of Bear Creek Park. Simi, I also talked to Evelyn Zacklin. She lives four blocks from the park and she's a longtime volunteer of the Surrey Art Gallery, which is located in Bear Creek Park. She is desperate to keep what little green space that city has. You know, our doctors nowadays are saying, go to the natural areas of the woods and and get well. And there's so many people that use this park and, and use that area that's going to be turned into a road. And they're just so upset about it. Simi, I also wanted to hear from councillors that were against it as well as for it. Um, I put in a call to the mayor's office and uh, Mayor Doug McCallum's office did not get back to me um, as of yet. And uh, I talked to Surrey councillor Linda Annis. She said the issue came to council in the form of a corporate report. And this issue has been around for a while. You may have even heard about it as early as the 90s. Um, Ironically, it was turned down by Mayor McCallum in the past. It's also come up during Diane Watts and Linda Hepner, but they listened to residents and they voted against it ultimately. But McCallum said to believe that every, he thinks that everyone wants this road. In fact, um, this is a quote from him. When I was walking on the track, I couldn't even run into anybody that didn't want it to go through. And he said, we're winning on all fronts with the road put in. Um, but Councillor Annis, she questions the accountability to the citizens who are paying $17 million for this new road. I, I have no idea who Mayor McCallum was talking to because I am hearing only we don't want our park to have a road going through it. Uh, I'm not hearing anyone say, let's put a road through this iconic park. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous that we're doing this. It absolutely is a no-brainer, and it's very unfortunate, but it seems that Doug McCallum's uh, councillors that are all part of the Safe Surrey Coalition just follow the lead of the mayor and vote as he does. They tend to vote as a block, which is very unfortunate. We all have our own voices. We were elected by the residents of Surrey to serve the residents' wishes, and I just find it very hard to believe that this is what the residents of Surrey want. Well, some concerned residents did organize, actually, and they amassed over 7,000 signatures on a petition that's been disregarded by the mayor. The real kicker, though, is that the consultation was, you know, not really effective. There was no public engagement. Here's Councillor Annis again. There was a public engagement um, uh, survey that was done, but that was done after the fact, and that was to determine what type of lights you wanted or whether you wanted a bike lane and things like that. And that's not public consultation. Public consultation, first and foremost, it should be, do you want this? Yes or no? It has been, you know, it's been such a rush, rush process. Um, People haven't had a chance to make their um, thoughts known unless, you know, you were aware that this was happening. And clearly there were some 7,000 people that were made aware of it. And I'm certain, absolutely certain that there are thousands upon thousands of more people that have the same feelings about Bear Creek Park that the 7,000 people did that signed the petition. What about other people in the area, Raji? Oh, I also talked to Doug Zacklin. He operates a heritage farm nearby. 
Yeah, I mean, every time I, I run through that park, I really enjoy seeing the diversity of people that are in there. And, and you know, our community is largely mixed and isolated from each other. And the park is a place where you can see everybody together enjoying the same thing. I think they're trying to solve one problem and they're creating another. I think of like a place that's really has a terrible traffic issue like New York and New York's not saying, hey, Central Park's in the way, let's put a road right through it. If we keep whittling away at the edges of everything, then eventually we're left with nothing. Boy, that Zachlin Heritage Farm, that is well known. Yeah, they've been around for a long time. Simi, normally a road project like this takes forever, right? You hear about it, it gets passed, and then you wait a long time for stuff to happen. Mysteriously, this project has been moved upon immediately. Markings already along the path, the just next to the creek, there's a, you know, orange spray paint indicating where hmm. things are going to happen. And I'm just curious to follow this story and follow the money, see where these contracts get picked up and by whom and what kind of consultation and engagement is going to happen from here on in with the residents. Will they be listened to? Yeah, we'll hear about that. Well, email us if you'd like to, simi at cknw.com. Weigh in with your thoughts on this. This is Mornings with Simi. Food insecurity, food equity. I mean, these are issues you may not have thought as much about before the pandemic, but dealing with the job losses, the shutdowns, well, that has led to ever-growing concerns about these issues. Joining us now for more on that is Ingrid Mendez, who's the Executive Director of Watari Counseling and Support Services. Ingrid, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's really nice being here with you today. What have you seen during the pandemic when it comes to food insecurity? What is happening? Well, we saw a lot, actually. Um, the very first few days were very confusing, uh, very stressful. And uh, people um, were reaching out to us because of that, because of food. And the fact that people were losing their jobs. Um, we are, we were supporting a lot of families, children. Um, we were also supporting agricultural migrant workers, um, that come here to produce the food we eat. And even though they produce the food we eat, they didn't have food themselves and they didn't have access to food because of the protocols and, um, the different restrictions that were set. So, we, we saw them uh, without food. We saw families, children. And, but the, the, the interesting fact about the pandemic was that the, the pandemic also teach, taught us that we could work together and unite together um, to support the communities. And uh, so we, we did a great effort of uniting and working together uh, in the downtown inside, especially, there were quite a few groups um, that we all got together and started uh, collaborating and working together, supporting the community. So we were able, so far, uh, just us as an organization, um, have done more than 42,000 meals that are being wow. distributed in the downtown inside. And uh, we also have done so far more than 3,000 food hampers that have gone to families and children. And we have done more than 5,000 uh, food hampers that have gone to agricultural migrant workers. That is amazing. But that also sounds like, Ingrid, that the demand right now is huge. It is. But we, um, like I said, we are uniting the families themselves. 
are part of the action. A lot of them have come and support us uh, in cooking those meals, in putting those hampers together. You know, food insecurity has been a story for many of our communities, um, communities of color, uh, black communities, indigenous communities, since colonizers arrived, because before colonizers arrived, we the, the, the food was part of our lives, and there was uh, um, a really good respect and dignity for food, and that's what we want now. We want respect, dignity, we want um, yeah. to achieve food sovereignty so that we produce the food ourselves, uh, but we produce it in community, uh, not not um, isolated um, in community, community gardens um, are also a big thing right now. Right. The government should put more resources into community gardens so that we can all together produce the food we eat. Yeah, how do you do that then? How do you foster more food independence when people are living in, in cities, right, in busy communities? Exactly with that. Community gardens are a big um are a big thing for 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 the urban communities because there are a lot of spaces in parks that we could be using for community gardens. Um, there are spaces, you know, we could even closing um, down streets uh, that we could use as community gardens. We can set up um, their um, spaces for to grow food. Right. So you need more of those spaces, though. Exactly. We do. We have um, some access to community gardens as an organization. Watari has about three community gardens right now, and we work on them every week with the community producing food there. And that's the food that comes into those meals that we, that we do every week. We do about 1,200 meals every week that are distributed in, in, in the community in the downtown inside and with our food hampers too. Some of that food that grows in the garden goes into those, into those food hampers that go to families and also agricultural migrant workers. So then who works in the community gardens? And if you're able to get the space and get these gardens going, how do you keep them going? Um, so the community themselves come every week. Families, sometimes children, after school, they come and they work on the garden. We have lots of pictures that we can show you of how they they put together the beds, um, they put together, they, they throw the soil in. And, and a lot of um, the resources that come into the gardens come from donations um, and also resources that come from our funders, United Way one of, being one of them. Um, we also the 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 work that the same families come and do, and it's all volunteer. It's all you know community driven. Um, so they we have these gardens and have had some of our gardens for more than fifteen years. We've been working on wow. them with the community and private donations. Um, anything that we can get, um, it's always helpful. Okay, so how? what would you like people to know then, Ingrid? How can people help? Well, they can help with this um, campaign that United Way is launching right now, supporting um, regional food hubs. And we, Watari and SRO Collaborative um, and another, other organizations in the downtown inside, such as uh, the Downtown Inside Neighborhood House, the Dudes Club, 
um, and other organizations, uh, the Grandview Woodlands Connection. Um, we are working together in a, in, in a food hub in the downtown inside that United Way is helping us with funding for that. Um, people can also come and volunteer if they want. Um, people can support us with financial donations or, or time donations. We are doing this work with a lot of dignity and a lot of respect. And that's what we hope, that when people donate to this campaign, mm-hmm. to this effort of food, they keep in mind the respect and dignity that this work is getting into. You know, right. we, we're, we're not asking for leftovers. We're asking for dignity when we do this work together. All right, Ingrid, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, no, thank you, Cindy, for having me. It's been great talking to you. You Have too. A great day. You too. Thank That's you. Ingrid Mendez, Executive Director at Watari Counseling and Support Services. They are working with the United Way on the issues of food security, food equity. Community garden program sounds amazing, doesn't it? Now, if you would like to help out with the United Way's uh, ongoing fundraising campaign to raise money for their community food hubs, a great idea, by the way, just check out their website, uwlm.ca.